I'd invite you to take your Bible. I hope that you have it with you. And turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 21. I look around the room and I think to myself, I mean, there's dozens of, oh, I don't know if people know so-and-so. And I don't know if people have connected yet with you know, Randy and Sarah. Randy and Sarah, sweet, sweet friends of ours. Long, long time. It's very good to see you here. Dan and Paula. Getting to know Dan and Paula from Illinois. It's so good to have you here. And I, I, I just want to remind you, there's always more relationships that we can build as part of our discipleship community. So I would encourage you that way. Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 1. Now that we've got the pleasantries of family and friendship, let's talk about slavery. (laughs) All right. Exodus 21, 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them, the Lord says to Moses. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married... Then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The topic before us this morning is, in fact, the law of God relating to the practice of slavery. How will God direct slave practice in Israel? We might reasonably say, the most fitting way would be to say, thou shalt not take slaves. I mean, as as long as you're going to make a command on it, we might argue that would be most fitting. And, And that honestly is totally reasonable given our pretext. I think that our response to this text is largely conditioned by our historical context, our history observation as a nation in the 16th through the 19th century. One synopsis that I read in preparation for this on slavery in human history reads something like this. Slavery in various forms has been a tragic constant since the fall of man. I want you to note that sentence. 
Since the fall, outside of the garden, slavery has been a tragic constant. We know some of the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade of the 16th through 19th centuries, but we're less familiar with what slavery looks out like what slavery looks like outside of that context. For instance, a million Europeans were enslaved by North American pirates from 1500 to 1800. During the Middle Ages, the Slavic people were so frequently and largely enslaved by Europeans and Muslims that the term slave comes from Slav, for Slavic people. Slavery existed among Asians, Polynesians, in China and India, among Africans, and in the Western Hemisphere long before Europeans even arrived. We know in this text the slavery of Hebrews to Egyptians. For most of history, people tended to enslave those who were like them because they were accessible. Limited trade meant you didn't go to another continent to capture your slave. You simply captured the person close to you. At times during the Middle Ages, Christians were enslaved by Muslims. But it was not until the modern colonial period that slavery began to affect racial evil. That is the pretext that might cause us to limp through a study of Exodus 21. The racial evil. White Europeans settle in the Americas and enslaved black Africans. Broadly speaking, you could say racism is the result rather than the cause of slavery. Most of our appropriate stigmas for slavery come from this horrible, long-lasting effect on our own country in which nearly 11 million Africans in total, more than the current population of Wisconsin and Minnesota put together, more than 11 million Africans landed in the Americas, predominantly South America, secondarily Central America, and then thirdly, North America. It's estimated that 388,000 Africans are brought to North America. Of the 11 million, 400,000 arrive here. But listen, of the 400,000 that were brought here in the slave trade, by the 1860 census, there are 4 million slaves in the States. This means there are 10 times more Africans born into slavery then captured and transported. The slavery existed because people were forcibly taken, transported, sold, or raised against their will. I hope that we can all agree that slavery is a blight on our nation's history, that the racial animus that it has produced continues to have lingering negative impact on our lives. Our country's participation in slavery is godless, it's an affront to scripture, and it is a blight 
on our nation's history. It is godless and it is baseless for scripture. Exodus 21 doesn't justify the transatlantic slave trade. However, I was in a debate. University of Wisconsin, um, Marshfield campus. Uh, must have been over 10 years ago. There was significant debate going on about the legalization of homosexual marriage. <laughs> Even as I say that, 10 years ago, we were having a debate because there was going to be legislative action taken about whether or not homosexual marriage would be legal in Wisconsin. Seems like 500 years ago. Things happen fast. And in that debate, in that forum, a woman who was advocating for the right of homosexual marriage in Wisconsin used Christian ideals defending slavery as a reason to discredit any Christian voice on the topic of gay marriage. Exodus 21 does not approve of slavery, especially in our most immediate context. That slavery that we have most experience with will likely make good interpretation of a text like this difficult. It will take a little more time for us than most. Because we might run into one of two ditches. We might look at this text and explain it away. And say, it's not describing anything like slavery anywhere in the world. It's just describing the nine to five workday. It's just the labor force. It's what we've come to know and even appreciate. Or we might run into the other ditch. And that is to say that this is biblical justification for the horrible slavery of our own context. Those would be two tragic ditches. The law of God does not condemn slavery, as we're going to study it. Neither does the law of God condone slavery. But God, in gracious wisdom, gives a law that constrains slavery. In the reality of the fall of humanity and the broad practice of slavery in this fallen world, the law is to make slavery more humane and therefore at the same time less desirable. This law is as much instruction to the indentured slave as it is to the master. And there are guarding principles for both parties that are meant to preserve testimony as the people of God, which is pretty staggering. The title I've given to this section of our study, and I'm not sure how many parts will be in this, but the title I've given is Terms and Ratifications. God's Civil Law for Life Outside of Eden. And that may wind up being a six, seven, or eight part series because it goes from what Pastor Will delivered two weeks ago at the end of chapter 20. It goes from 2022 through 23. And it explains the practical day-to-day applications of the moral law. So we have these 10 words, these 10 commands, and then God fathers us through the practical applications of those. This, you could say, is a practical application of what does it mean to not covet 
or to not bear false witness. Both of those sins from the ten would be addressed in this practical application. So we find here in what's called the book of the covenant, this portion that we're studying here. We find here this practical application of how to keep these ten. More specifically, we might say the practical application of how to keep the two. Love God and love your neighbor. In this section, there are two themes that are not new to Exodus. There are two themes. The first one is slavery and freedom. That's not new. That's where the book starts. Then there's another one, though, that's a little more subtle, and that is God's Sabbath instruction, which is another moral instruction. Keep the Sabbath. And we're going to see here in just a moment how that Sabbath principle is applied even to this work relationship. Right away in the first verse, you see this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is a new term, rules. It's not meant to say this is a different law. It's meant to say now we're entering into a sort of case book for the Ten Commands. The book of the covenant. The specific applications for the holy behavior of God's people that accords to the Ten Commands. Then, in verses 2 through 11, we see this guidance concerning what's command, what's commanded. Don't steal, don't covet, keep the Sabbath. I want you to note one thing. The reference to Hebrew slave. This is going to rein in what is appropriate application for this text. The, the Hebrew slave. Pastor Will asked me, on the way into the worship center this morning, I, I said something about, well, it's time to go preach about slavery. <laughs> and he said, oh, how is it going? And I said, well, it's, it's obviously not as complicated as it could be because of this term. The reference to Hebrew slaves, the reference not to racial bias, not to seeing someone because of the color of their skin as less human or less image bearer, But Hebrews, your neighbors. So the reference to the Hebrew slave means that this individual is a slave, but a slave with hope. Relatively short-term hope. It means that it's appropriate to think of this slave in this category. Something less than a free citizen, but something more than a full slave. I debated whether I would use the word slave or the word servant. There's a lot of literature written that just chooses to use the word servant. There are a couple words that were striking to me, and I thought about the semantics, like what should I go with? And I've decided to stick with the word slave. The other is the word master, or a lot of commentaries refer to the, the authority as the boss. And those words were all uncomfortable in my context of history lessons about slavery. This slave should be seen as something less than a full liberated citizen, but something more than a full slave. I'm I'm not willing to change the word to servant, but it is something more than a full slave. So the hope that they have, the freedom, it's all dependent on the integrity of both parties. It's all dependent on the sort of reverence that both the slave and the slave master have for God. The relationship is totally horrific 
if either the slave or the slave master disregards the holiness of God. Look at verse 6 and see the basis for that. The master shall bring the slave to God, bring him to the doorpost, this is referring to the tabernacle, future temple, and the master shall bore his ear through with an awl. He shall be his slave forever. But go to the house of God, testify both of you to the priest that this is a mutual working agreement, and then mark the slave and the master. All right. So I want to point out three liberties in this restricted relationship of master and slave. That's what I want to do this morning, is point out three liberties. Let me pray, and then we'll walk through the three. Father, I pray that you'd be honored in the way that we um, proclaim this book of covenant, these terms and ratifications of your moral law, that we would understand that you are a God who cares about our civil operation, you are a God who insists that the people called by your name do things that honor you even while we function in the wilderness. As we travel back to the garden where this conversation is no longer necessary. So Lord, we pray that you would honor yourself not as a God who is indicted for being somehow culpable for the horror of the modern tr slave industry. But a God who graciously loves his people and seeks to protect and guard them and things like their family. So Lord, we, we pray to you and we, we go humbly into the study in Christ's name. Amen. The first, the first liberty that I want to show you that God gives slaves is in verses 2 through 4. The slave must have a term limit. The slave must have a term limit. The normal contractual agreement in Israel for a slave was a period of six years and then Sabbath. On the seventh year, they would be free from that relationship. Not seven years and then some sort of buyout. But work six years, and on the seventh year, you are free. This, like I said, reminds us of the Sabbath principle. Work six days and rest on the seventh. So the Bible says when you buy a Hebrew slave, the word buy is really significant. It tells us a lot about this institution that God's governing when you buy well, first question I have is, to whom is the money paid to secure the worker? Who gets the money? Most often, the payment went to the individual. Now, that qualifies what I think about slavery right away. Payment to the individual. Cost of living expenses covered for the individual. Most often in historic context in Israel... The individual sold himself to the service of another. Leviticus 25 explains that. As, as I walked through this, I was so mindful of how we struggle 
to comprehend Leviticus 21, I'm sorry, Exodus 21, in the context of our own stigmas about the horror of modern slavery. And I thought, this is so hard for us to wrap our minds around. Let me give you what I think is the clearer illustration in our culture, and that is an individual who enlists themselves to military service. When you go and you sign yourself up, for four, six, eight years. Or you might choose to make it your lifelong career. You agree to the terms placed on you for a set compensation and provision. Now, there's a lot of latitude where maybe you could be dismissed from your terms where it doesn't seem like that's the case as much here. But even to, to the point we're going to get to in just a moment where he says, now, if, if you enter into this six-year covenant relationship and, and you've been paid, and while you're in your six years, you find a wife and you marry, at the end of your six years, maybe she has four left. You don't both leave. You finished your six, you leave. She has four left. Well, that would be the same thing in our modern military application, right? You, you find someone who's also in the military service and they have years left to their term, but yours is over. You don't get to take your bride and say, oh, we're done. It's similar. And so I, I think that it helps us see a little bit of what's being described here. Not perfectly, but I think better than our modern understanding of the slave trade. So there's no specification about how the money is to be paid. There are examples, for instance... There are examples in Genesis 29 where Jacob goes to Laban and he says, okay, I'm going to agree to work. And in the first seven years, he agrees to work. The payment will come after seven years. That might have been one model that some landowners would have applied. They would have said, okay, you're going to get this much money at the end of your six years. But also in Genesis 29, there's the other example where Laban tricks Jacob and he gets paid for that one at the beginning of his seven. So there's there's biblical basis for maybe the payment was made to the individual on the front end or the back end. Some might have negotiated a periodic payment. Pay me twice a year or once a month. Look at verse 3 and 4. The purpose of this law is to ensure that neither the worker nor the employer loses what's rightfully his at the time of termination. It gives protection for the slave in family matters. The slave must have term limit. If the slave comes in single, single, unattached worker. If the slave starts married, then they leave married. What becomes complicated is the couple who gets married during their contractual obligation and has children at that time. What would happen to a man who was married to a woman during his six-year slavery, and at the end of it, he says, okay, my time is done, I'm going to go, and, and the master says, well, I've paid for your wife. She's in a six-year contract. Well, I don't want to leave her and the kids... Now you have a couple choices. The first is simple enough. A worker could say, okay, I'm going to go live here across town 
and you'll live here and you'll finish out your term and then we'll be reunited. And that too happens in military context, doesn't it? There are times when you say, oh, you have to be stationed. You, you, have, you have to be deployed. I don't get to go with you. I was just talking with a friend about sometimes eight months without communication. That happens in our context. The second choice might be that you would get a job and pay off the debt. Or there's a third choice. And that is, you might say, I'm going to stay here indefinitely. Things are going well. It's my choice. You're seven. I'm going to stay. My wife's here. My family's here. I have appreciated working for this family. I'm staying. The principle of Sabbath is really clear here. And let me just say, when it comes to our labor, even our unwelcome slavery to sin, that Jesus is a great picture of that seventh year. Jesus is our hope that this will not be forever. That all of my labor, all of my toiling will be lifted and relieved in Christ. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laid down, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. My, my yoke, my burden, they're easy and they're light. So Christ is the Sabbath that we see shadowed in the moral law and here in the book of covenant. The first part being the slave must have a term agreement. The second part being the slave would have the freedom to voluntarily extend their service. Verse 5 and 6. The slave would have the freedom to voluntarily extend their service. I mean, there's, there is no context in colonial slavery for that statement. Okay, when you get to the end of this little period of time, you decide. You want to, you want to keep going? Or you're going to be done. I mean, we, there's nothing about modern slavery in colonial America that sounds like that. Like, none of our pretext is conditioned to read that. So, verse 5. You might hear the slaves say, I love my master, my wife, my children, so I am not going to go out. The servant might consider it a disadvantage to go free. Maybe it's because they're no longer able to live with their family. Maybe it's because they lose the provisions like food and shelter and clothing. If they concluded that, they would have the choice to stay. But you couldn't enter into that commitment informally or impulsively. Here is a guard against the human condition. Six years comes to an end, and the master says, Well, Bill, i got to tell you, you've been a great worker. And uh, I just don't think we could make things work as well if you left, so you're stuck here. Stuck here? Yeah, I'm not going to let you go. Wait, the, the, the command of God is that you let me go after six years. I have a choice to make now. Yeah, but I'm afraid you're going to leave, and that would not be profitable for me. 
That, that we can relate to, right? That we have a context for. But this, this provision required master and slave go to the tabernacle, soon to be temple, and stand before God and the priests and each one had to speak, the text says, plainly their vow. They are each getting to express their individual desire. This is protection against the human condition that says, oh, I, I, I need them. I'm greedy. I can't, I can't let them go. So God leads his people even in the wilderness toward Eden. So they would go and they would swear before God. Look at verse 6. God being the judge of every covenant that would be made. Then the master would take an awl and punch a hole in the ear. There's got to be a better way to do it, but people do it this way all the time. My daughters are constantly asking me, bore a hole in their ear. Right, sweetie? So then this hole would be made in the ear. Now this isn't to inflict some sort of punishment or some sort of pain on the slave, but rather, now you have the testimony of a landowner, of a business, of a farm, and there is Bill. And Bill is working through year seven, year eight, year nine. And the farmer over there has been seeing Bill for six, seven, eight, nine years. And the farmer says, I think that neighboring farm owner is breaking the law. They are not fearing God. But then one day, the neighboring farmer happens to see Bill up close and sees his ear and says, oh, you're here by choice. I understand. The family is an institution created by God. And while in much of ancient history the family was not anything like the nucleus that it is to us, the family is instituted by God. And it is a joy, it's a delight to me to see the way God preserves family. Even in the wilderness. You do not have to leave your wife and your children where they are and go about your life without them. God graciously makes this provision to treasure and preserve the bond of biological and domestic family. So first, there has to be terms. Second, there's only voluntary extension. There's only voluntary Initiation, But there's only voluntary extension. And then third, the family slave, or, I'm sorry, the female slave must have additional protection. There is distinction functionally between male and female slaves. So look at verse 7. When a man sells his daughter, that's another way that a person could enter into slavery, the son or daughter could be sold, She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, 
who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. So if, if a young lady has entered into the six-year covenant of this slave workforce, at the end of the, or maybe the end of the first year, maybe the end of the second year, the farmer says, this is not working out. Then she should go back. Uh, in verse 8. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So, this again, I, I just I want to go back up and I want you to understand that this is a section about Hebrew slavery to Hebrew masters. They're forbidden from selling these slaves to a foreigner. Verse 9. If... The master designated her for his son. He shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, first of all, her clothing, second of all, or her marital right. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. If this female slave is not dealt with according to God's provision, then she's free. The terms of the covenant relationship that she's in have been broken, and she's free to return to her family without payment. So the family who has been paid for her work would not receive reimbursement. I want you to note that verse 8 does not say that the woman had no way out of service. In addition to what's said in verse 2 and 3, this section makes clear that they did. She could return to her family, be considered free. She could not be sold to a foreign master. She might be arranged for marriage, but must be treated like a daughter, not a piece of property. So if you have a, first of all, please remember that every marriage in this context is an arranged marriage. Every daughter has a husband selected for her by her family. If the payment for the bride and the work is to be combined, we see that this is a pretty expensive investment. Look at verse 9. brings out the fact that the woman whose service contract is purchased along with her bride price so even though she is in this category of slavery if she is also a bride she is to be treated like a bride not a slave so even though functionally the money may have gone to purchase her labor if she's been given in marriage to the master's son then she is a wife not a slave obligated to the son that's an important part of the word of God and the nature of God. Verse 10 shows us what it means for her to be treated as a regular legal wife. And there are three things specifically in verse 10 and 11. It says that she must be provided for and cared for and nurtured in areas of food, clothing, and sexual relation. Failure to provide equal treatment in every way to any other wife 
was a sufficient ground for her to be freed from her contractual obligations. The Apostle Paul reiterates this principle, especially as it relates to sexual relationship, marriage intimacy, in 1 Corinthians 7. Reminds us that a married couple is to engage in regular sexual activity. The Bible forbids sexual interaction outside of marriage, but the Bible requires sexual interaction inside of marriage. Sexual intimacy serving as a covenant seal in our marriage. So, this could not be withheld, along with food and clothing. Here is God caring for his people in what seems like an unfortunate condition to even have to regulate, doesn't it? Like, don't you read this and think, I'd really rather all of this just be avoided. Wouldn't it be easier to just avoid all human interaction among sinners? (laughs) It certainly would be. But since that's not the condition they live in, in this wilderness of the fall, then it must be regulated. Maybe something like the way so many things have to be regulated by us or on us. The way that we treat each other. The things that are criminally restricted. The the way that we provide for our children. uh, The way that we travel. The way that we hunt. These things are regulated because of who we are. Not so much because of who God is. It is a gracious regulation. But the existence of what's being regulated is evidence of the fall, of the curse. So the law of God doesn't condemn this relationship. It also, please, friends, doesn't condone it either. It doesn't say, now the first thing you need to do when you get outside of Egypt is get back into slavery. However, God constrains slavery, making it more humane and therefore making it less desirable. God cares for us as individuals. God cares for our functional testimony. God could have simply said, here are the ten words. Go do these things. But like a father, he says, and this is how you do them correctly. And so we have this practical application of how will we not covet? How will we not lie, bear false witness? How will we keep the principle of work and rest in our lives? And God directs us. I would say, I would say it this way, practically. The, the direction here for you as both an employee and an employer matters. The direction for you as an employee and an employer matters. What sort of employee are you? Are you an employee who says, yeah, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on board and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to be a contributor and I'm going to be trustworthy and dependable and then three months later you're not. There's a warning here for that. Are you the sort of employer who doesn't necessarily regard the well-being of the people that work for you, but just how do I get 
to the goal that I want to get to, maybe financially or maybe in business growth. There are lessons here for you. I would say also that for all of us, God cares about our functional testimony. We might assume God cares most about where we're headed, heaven or hell. I would say that God cares about how we're getting there. I, I did go on vacation with my family two weeks ago, the week before Easter. We had, we had left, and Josh and Will were preaching, and we were gone. And, and we drove from here to Louisiana, right on the Gulf of Mexico. And there were so many times I was reminded that it must have been obvious we were traveling from one spot to another because on our travel down... We had, you know, jackets or sweaters or something to keep us warm because where we left, it was cold. And then you get down farther where it's 80 degrees and people look at your long sleeve quarter zip and think, you're not from around here. But the same happened on the return trip. We left there and it was beautiful and warm. We were in shorts and slip-ons and t-shirts and then drove home. And by the time we got here, there was a 40 degree difference in temperature in a 16-hour drive. But the one thing that resonated with me is the people who saw us could tell by what we were doing where we were heading or where we had come from. And I want to remind you of that same thing. The way that you operate in practical things like employee-employer relationship. Tell the world about where you're heading. You're heading to a place where there will be exclusively humane interaction between people. You are headed back to the garden, out of this wilderness. The final delivery from that evil is not God's law. This is a grace, friends. The law of God is a grace, but not the grace we need most. This is not saving grace. Fatherly grace, for sure. The grace we need most is Jesus Christ. The one who will constrain all of this sin and all of this curse and deliver us forever to eternal life. Christ is the answer to sin and all these social complications that the law graciously directs us through. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we hold this book of covenant we would understand that you are an intimately caring Father. I pray that we would understand that this direction matters to us. It's relevant to us. The applications are many. But mostly, God, would you give us this morning eyes to see that the way we operate as your people matters to you. Not simply the confession of our heart, the creed of our mouth, but the way that we interact in this fallen curse matters. And then secondly, help us to preserve in that function the testimony of where we are headed and who we belong to. Among all the peoples of the earth, you directed slave relationship for your people and all the myriad of examples of barbaric wicked horrific human slavery your people 
are marked by these terms. So Father, I pray that you would cause us to see the significance of what it means to operate daily as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.